I'm announcing a pardon for all prior federal offenses for the simple possession of marijuana. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. Let's go, Dank Brandon. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast is heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. On Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Rochester, New York, WRFZ. In New Orleans, Louisiana, it's WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, ATNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Oh, yes. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but today... I'm back. You got me, Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show based at NicoleSandler.com. And we're going to get right to it. We got a lot to cover today, starting with a bit of news. The Nobel Peace Prize was announced Friday morning, and the honor this year goes to human rights campaigners in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. They are jailed human rights advocate Alex Bialyatsky from Belarus, the Russian human rights organization Memorial, and the Ukrainian human rights organization Center for Civil Liberties. All three were announced as the 2022 winners of the Nobel Peace Prize at a ceremony in Oslo. The timing couldn't be more perfect. Speaking Thursday night in New York City, President Biden spoke in pretty frightening terms, saying, quote, For the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have a direct threat of the use of a nuclear weapon if, in fact, things continue down the path they're going. We've not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then he added, I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon. Wow. Keeping all that in mind, this next story comes at the right time, too. Well, for those of us who might want something to calm our nerves, President Biden made an unexpected announcement Thursday afternoon. As I said when I ran for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states, and criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. So today, I'm taking three steps to end this failed approach. First, I'm announcing a pardon for all prior federal offenses for the simple possession of marijuana. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. My pardon will remove this burden on them. Second, I'm calling on all governors to do the same for state marijuana possession offenses. Third, the federal government currently classifies marijuana as a Schedule I substance, the same as heroin and LSD, and more serious than fentanyl. It makes no sense. So I'm asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to initiate a process to review how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. Even as federal and local regulations of marijuana change, important limitations on trafficking, marketing and underage sales should stay in place. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. 
Interestingly, Politico reporting that John Fetterman, you know, the Democratic nominee for Senate from Pennsylvania running against Mehmet Oz, he got a heads up from the White House that Biden would pardon marijuana offenses and review how it's scheduled. This after Fetterman talked with the president for 20 minutes last month in Pittsburgh, where he urged the president to deschedule cannabis. So now that you're sufficiently chill and ready to get all creative, it's time to see what challenges you'll face in getting your works to be seen, heard, read, or sold. I'll speak with author, journalist, and antitrust activist Cory Doctorow and the co-author of their new book, Choke Point Capitalism, Rebecca Giblin. Stick around. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. To make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thanks. You're listening to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting today and bringing you a must-hear interview for anyone who's a creator or consumer of art. From books to music to film and anything else you can dream of. The authors of the new book, Choke Point Capitalism, How Big Tech and Big Content Capture Creative Markets and How We'll Win Them Back. Cory Doctorow is a brilliant author, journalist, antitrust activist. His co-author, Rebecca Giblin, is professor at Melbourne Law School and director of the Intellectual Property Research Institute of Australia. Their work focuses on creators' rights, access to knowledge and culture, technology, regulation, and copyright. And we begin with how this project came about. The creation story for this book, the origin story, all began in a taxi in Melbourne back at the start of 2018. And we'd worked together just a tiny little bit before, but in that taxi ride, we were realizing that we were both seeing the problem in exactly the same way. There's always this kind of false dichotomy presented to us when we talk about these issues around getting creators paid, about are you on the side of creators or are you on the side of users? And we were both saying, well, that doesn't work at all. That's not what it's really about. The problem is that we've got these big businesses, big content and big tech, who are using their power to shape down creators and creative suppliers like publishers and independent record labels and get everything that they can. And so that's where it was born. And then uh, we that was the, the, really the germ of the idea. And it wasn't until early 2020 when the world was cancelled and so was the rest of what I had planned for the year. And I I sort of saw that as a moment of freedom. Well, what do I actually want to work on now instead of what had I planned a year or two ago that I would work on now? And it was this story, the one that I felt like I really had to tell. So I started uh, work on it and then a couple of weeks in of like very like exhilarating but frustrating and amazing uh, work, I thought... This would be much better if Cory Doctorow wrote it with me. <laughs> anyway, I dropped him an email, and eventually, here we are. Yeah, we we um, decided that uh, we would try and come up with a way to break the deadlock that normally comes up where, where people say, do you want more rights for creators or fewer rights for creators? And in re- instead, talk about the kinds of rights for creators and for other kinds of workers that will actually put, you know, groceries on the table rather than... 
just, you know, this kind of reflexive idea that all you want to do is, is get more copyright or longer copyright or easier to enforce copyright. Instead, we wanted to get uh, the kind of copyright that, that actually uh, makes a material difference to creators' lives and gets rid of these choke points. Uh, it's not checkpoint capitalism, it's choke point capitalism. Right. Can you describe, are... describe what choke point capitalism sure. is? Sure. Choke point capitalism is the idea that firms can use some combination of law and contract and technology to corral an audience. So, you know, you think about your relationship to YouTube, stay, say, where really if you want to reach people, there's a couple, three services you can use, Twitch, YouTube, maybe maybe one or two smaller ones. And if you don't want to use any of those, uh, you basically cut your audience by maybe nine-tenths. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the companies that control those choke points can extract big concessions from you. Um, it, it kind of doesn't matter how much copyright we give you. You're still gonna, you're still gonna face those concessions. Giving someone who has to go through a choke point more copyright is like giving a bullied kid more lunch money. It's not gonna get them fed, right? You, you need to actually do something about the structure of the market. Right. In fact, at the beginning of the book, you have a great analogy about the kid that you give $5 uh, each day for lunch and he goes to school, but the bullies take the lunch money. And you explain that the answer is not giving him more money. Because then they'll just take away more. They'll take away more money. So that's what this book is for: to explain how to make that lunch money go as far as it needs to go, and and not give <laughs> in to the bullies along the way. Well, that's that's the thing that's different about this book. Uh, we were we're really tired. There's so many books out there that we call chapter 11 books, that you spend the first 10 chapters bemoaning the problem, how terrible everything is, wringing our hands. And then chapter 11, oh, well, we've kind of run out of space and a few hand wavy. Maybe we could do this kind of ideas for, for change. We uh, decided to do it differently. And yes, we set up the first half of the problem to persuade you that the problem is not that there's not enough copyright or not enough whatever, but that there is a power imbalance, that these choke points are the problem. But then the whole second half of the book, we set out detailed, shovel-ready solutions that people can adopt into different kinds of creative industries in order to actually get more money into artists' pockets. And, and I love that your, your concentration is on the creative artist because there's a lot of people out there just struggling to get by. And then we maybe thought that with the advent of the internet, the great equalizer, everyone's going to have a chance at being heard, being seen, um, getting their stuff out there. But it doesn't work that way because as you point out, and Corey, you've been pointing out for a while now, um, there's just a handful of companies. Consolidation has taken over to the point where regardless of what segment of of the society you're looking at, chances are it's all controlled by, you know, if you're lucky, three or four or five companies. In many cases, it's more like one or two or three, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us remember the promise of those early years of the internet. And, you know, it's true that the early years of, of uh, Napster and other file sharing uh, did really... Um, do some damage to the livelihoods of creators and, and um, uh, especially smaller labels, but it also opened up all kinds of new ways for people to distribute. And uh, it, it seemed for a while like maybe we would be getting rid of these gatekeepers. Certainly, uh, it, it made the labels that survived a lot more concerned about making sure that they, they cut a good deal for the artists who might be able to go it on their own. But over time, what we saw was that the tech industry became as consolidated as the, as the entertainment industry. And moreover, in many cases, they sort of merged, whether that's Amazon being a publisher or the labels taking significant interest in Spotify. And it's a bit like the final scene of Animal Farm is a spoiler alert in case you haven't read a 70 <laughs> year old book by George Orwell. But at the end of Animal Farm, you know, the pigs who have led the revolution decide that they're actually going to throw their lots in with the farmers who were their enemies. And as the animals peer in the window of the farmhouse, they look from the pigs to the men and the men to the pigs, and they can't see the difference. Right. And yes, I mean, it feels that way, right? You know, uh, we, Corey and I have spoken before, Rebecca, so pardon me if we go over familiar territory here, but just to bring the listeners full circle, you know, I come from the world of music radio. And my world started falling apart in 1996 when Bill Clinton signed the Telecommunications Act, which mm. upended all the rules on ownership. Starting there, it used to be that one company could own one AM, one FM, and one TV in a market with a limit of seven of each total 
in in the whole country. Well, now they can do that in one market. They can own eight radio stations. They can own more than one television station and a newspaper. It used to be they realized that a variety of voices was necessary in a real democracy, that the more voices meant more discussion, more freedom. more. But now there are no controls. So one voice, one media voice could own pretty much every radio station, TV, and newspaper in a market, and that's okay. Again, my radio career continued on the downslide when the internet came up and one and stations were being sold and groups were shrinking and where one company would own now eight. My last place was Los Angeles. And my last station was sold because one group, Clear Channel, merged with AMFM. And again, they had too many stations. So they were going to sell mine, which at the time was two smaller signals in Santa Monica and Newport Beach, both at 103.1. And so we convinced the higher-ups at, at Clear Channel to let us be the first station to go seamlessly from over the air to internet only. And we did. And then mm. the dot-com bust happened. So we were too early. And But it's mm. still, there are so many restrictions on what you can and can't do if you're going to play music on the internet. There are rules from this Digital Millennium Copyright Act that have no bearing on anything. It was Internet was in its infancy. And yet those rules still dictate what's happening today. Now, 20 years later, is it part of the problem that legislation and Rule makers can't keep up with the technology? Or is that a totally different issue? You know, I, I think that that's oversold. I, I, I confess that I've been as guilty as the next sort of smug millennial of accusing old politicians of not being smart enough to regulate the Internet. We all laughed when Ted Stevens talked about dump trucks and series of tubes. <laughs> but the reality is, you know, there's no microbiologists in, in, uh, in, in Congress, and yet somehow we can drink our tap water if we live outside of Flint. And that's that's not because um, they have all done their reading. It's because it is possible to make laws about highly technical subjects through expert regulation and 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 rulemaking. What's happened instead over not just the last 20 years since since the Clinton years, but over the last 40 years since the Reagan years is a tolerance for monopoly. Uh, Reagan decided 40 years ago that. Um, the problem with monopolies wasn't that they could screw over their workers or that they could corrupt the political process. It was that, in his view, a small minority of monopolies were inefficient and would raise prices and that and that regulators should only ever attend to these and that most of the time, even if it looked like a monopolist was raising prices, they probably weren't. It's probably all in your imagination. And 40 <laughs> years later, we ended up with so much consolidation across every sector and it was bipartisan. It was, as you say, George Clinton or Bill Clinton. I always mix him up with George Clinton. <laughs> Bill Clinton He's signed, the funk, signed, you know. uh, right. signed the Telecoms Act and uh, you know, Obama oversaw many giant mergers uh, and it really wasn't until Biden that you saw some uh, really muscular antitrust enforcement. And I don't know that it's Biden personally feeling this way, but certainly the appointments that he made because of the internal politics of the Democratic Party, the head of the FCC, FTC, rather, Lena Kahn, uh, the DOJ's head of antitrust, uh, Cantor, uh, and Tim Wu in the White House right. have all been a real powerhouse and have surrounded themselves with the staff and have be become part of a global movement to rein in monopoly at everywhere. And, you know, monopoly is, is very bad, but monopsony, which is what we write about, which is when not just when there's a small number of, of sellers, but when there's a small number of buyers, is even more dangerous. I don't know, Rebecca, you, you like to talk about this. Monopsony becomes problematic at way lower market concentrations than monopoly. So a buyer that controls just 8 or 10% of the market can have a lot of power over sellers. Um, so when we're talking about buyers, we're talking about Amazon when it's dealing with publishers. Um, Apple and Google when they're dealing with software developers um, and things like that. And if we think about this in the context of just, you know, and the, uh, the, the radio industry, for example, this um, increase in monopoly and monopsony that we've seen over the last 40 years, we can see a number of ways in which it's playing out. So one of the things, of course, um, has been that there has been that shuttering of those local stations, which makes it much more difficult for emerging artists to break oh, through yeah. in ways that are not coming through um, those sort of centralized choke points like the major record labels, Spotify's playlists and things like that. We also see it in the fact that big radio has been able to defeat 
literally dozens of bills to require radio stations to pay royalties when there are um, the sound recordings played. And uh, the United States is in an extremely exclusive club on that internationally. The other members are Iran, North Korea, and Rwanda, maybe one or two others. But just to give you an idea where that sits. Wow. You know, we don't, uh, we, why I'm saying we, I'm talking about the government when they write these laws, I guess, or when they don't do something to protect us. And, and Corey, I know that last time you and I spoke, we were very optimistic because there were these new uh, antitrust um, bills being brought up. But has there been any progress? Because I don't notice anything happening since then. What there's been is a lot of administrative progress and not much legislative progress. Uh, you may have noticed, but Congress has become pretty dysfunctional <laughs> for reasons that are like not directly related to antitrust. Right. Um, the rise and fall of the, the suite of, of um, it must be said, a mixed bag, but some very excellent tech antitrust bills in the American Congress is unrelated to the merits for those or the political will for them. I think it has a lot more to do with January 6th. So. Uh. But what we have seen is that there is an extremely competent set of administrators on the antitrust side. So Tim Wu, who runs the White House antitrust efforts, ghost wrote an executive order for Biden in the summer 2020, enumerating 72 things that the president and the administration could do without congressional approval on antitrust. And they set out a timeline to do all of them, and they've hit their marks on every single one of them. And, and they made another set of announcements where we're going to see the there's like a 19th century meatpacking law that's going to be invoked for the first time in 75 years that's going to free up chicken farmers who are among the most exploited workers in the world from, from uh, the abusive relationships they have with chicken plants. Um, there's going to be something else on hidden fees and pay and telephone bills and so on. So there's been a lot of action. And, and, and what's more important, I think, is that internationally, there's been a lot of co coordination and cooperation. So the Europeans have introduced and passed the Digital Markets Act, which um, is going to require interoperability in tech platforms. So you're going to be able to plug in new app stores to your iPhone and you're going to be able to connect new services to existing ones. Uh, but they're also opening up a bunch of investigations into tech companies. Now, they don't have a lot of staff to do that with. They're underfunded. But in the UK, across the channel, uh, its parliament is also very dysfunctional. <laughs> so they sure. managed to create a budget for antitrust without creating antitrust powers for the agency. So their competition and markets authority has 80 full-time engineers, but no enforcement powers. So those engineers have basically been pursuing deep investigations into tech monopolies that are then being used by the Europeans who have a lot of powers, but no investigators to go after the companies. So we're seeing a real kind of international coalition of the willing here. Even the Chinese cyberspace directive has got some tech antitrust in it. I think all over the world, there's this understanding that tech giants are standing up for tech giants, not for the countries they come from, not for the workers who produce their materials, uh, not for anything except their shareholders' interests. Right. And those and, international okay. interventions have a lot of promise because what we're seeing uh, is that when an international regulator takes action, and we've seen that with a few countries against Apple with its App Store, well, then Apple might just change its policies for the whole world because it ends up being just too annoying to try and have different ones um, across different countries. So if we can, we can achieve more through these international interventions, that's one way of creaking open these choke points, widening them out throughout the entire world. Right. And, and, and tell me if this doesn't apply. I think it does. There was recently a new law passed or a new um, avenue. So people, if you own Apple, I'm not a big, I'm not an Apple person, um, but you couldn't take your phone or iPad or computer to your local shop. If it broke, you had to go to an Apple uh, authorized dealer to get something fixed. Well, now you have the right to repair this is something that we had to have a law passed for? Is this so it wasn't a law. The, the FTC opened a proceeding and the, there was an administrative, uh, an executive order as well. The laws have actually been roundly defeated. There were 18 of them introduced at the state level in 2018 and a, a 20 plus in 2019. And they were killed by a sort of unholy coalition of like... John Deere and GM and Apple and even Wall, the company that makes the shavers, uh -huh. uh, they've started um, 
booby trapping the the shaver heads of their clippers with a spring-loaded mechanism. So if you take them apart to sharpen them, they fly apart and you have to send them back to the factory to have them put back together again. So this this weird coalition came together to kill all these state uh, law. But, you know, uh, no matter how many of these state laws they kill, people really want to fix their own stuff. So we've seen some limited state laws on right to repair. There was a New York one on electronics. Um, much more interesting, actually, is the Colorado one on powered wheelchairs, where, uh, again, this is another one of these choke points, but for something else, where uh, all the power wheelchairs in America are made by two companies because Medicare has a lowest bidder uh, policy, so they've all consolidated. Medicare only pays for indoor chairs, but of course people who have power wheelchairs like to go outside, <laughs> and they don't pay for preventative maintenance. And the private equity-backed monopolies that have cornered the market on chairs have cut their uh, maintenance budgets. So there's almost the, it's very hard to get your chair fixed. And you can be confined to bed for months at a time while you wait for minor repairs to be on your chair. So Jared Paulus, the governor of Colorado, signed in uh, a new um, antitrust law that, that guarantees the right to repair uh, your, your wheelchair, your powered wheelchair in the state of Colorado. And, you know, I think what this all comes to is what we get out in the last chapter of the book, which is that although we're writing about entertainment labor markets, that there are a lot of labor markets that look like this. And there are a lot of mm -hmm. other kinds of markets that look like this, where you have excessive corporate power, excessive buyer power, and not enough worker power. And that the way that we're going to make a difference is not by creative workers coming together on their own. There is power in that. We, we give some examples of some really uh, effective recent uh, labor uh, solidarity movements, but by making cross-sectoral uh, alliances, by having solidarity with Uber drivers who are in the most choke point of all choke point capitalisms, uh, and with nurses, and with lots of other kinds of workers who are situated like, like entertainment workers, like creative workers, who do the work not just because they expect to get paid for it, but because they love it. Right. And that's something we share with teachers and nurses. And teachers and nurses' bosses understand, like our bosses understand, that even if you abuse the, your workers, they'll still show up for work because they love the work and they feel a duty to do it. Lots more information on the way, especially if you're a gig worker. Stick around. My conversation with Corey Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin, authors of Choke Point Capitalism, continues in a moment. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Desi Doyen of the Green News Report and the broadcast. Did you know that we are completely listener-supported? You can help us stay 100% independent over your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting today in mid-conversation with Cory Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin the authors of Choke Point Capitalism. And if you're a gig worker or a contract worker or a creative sort trying to earn a living with your art, listen up. This is about you. You know, Uber drivers and other sort of uh, delivery people are some of the, the most powerless workers that we have, especially in the way that they get falsely categorized as being independent contractors and all kinds of abuses like that. Um, one of the abuses that they're subject to are these contracts they take away their rights to uh, class actions. So effectively, that is taking away their rights, uh, access to justice uh, when there are abusive practices because it's prohibitive for any one individual to, to, to pay the costs of an action on their own behalf in this kind of circumstance. And so the only way that it's possible is when they band together and bring a class action. When uh, contracts prohibit them from doing so, they tend to be given something called mandatory commercial arbitration instead. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that they go into these private um, administrative proceedings to have grievances heard. They are paid for by the company. And we know from the, the research that the uh, adjudicators of these have their thumb pressed on the scale on the side of the, the big business that actually pays their wages. They don't have any precedential value, which means that they can't be leveraged very well into helping other workers. Now, faced with these circumstances, tens of thousands of these workers all coordinated to bring 
private arbitration actions against these companies at exactly the same time. While it's way cheaper for the companies to defend one commercial arbitration than one class action, boy, is it expensive for them to have to defend tens of thousands of them, prohibitively expensive. And these companies ran to the court saying, oh, no, this is so unfair. We're being bullied by our <laughs> by these these people who are all like being mean to us by bringing these actions at the same time. Please make them stop because this was supposed to be better for us, not worse. <laughs> now, in the end, Uber actually had to settle with it, most of its workers on this for $150 million. Wow. And so that kind of solidarity and jujitsu by workers to show that they do have power when they work together and finding ingenious ways of doing that um, is the kind of hopeful and inspiring thing that we write about in the book. Well, good. And I want to get into that part of the book, what the solutions are, because, great, we know the problem. We could talk about the problem forever. The question is, how do we fix it? But I want to share with you just a, a minute long clip. Um, you know, I mostly talk about it, politics and news, but I still keep a foot in music because I love music. And that's, you know, I come from music radio. There's an artist, a wonderful singer songwriter named Dar Williams, who was on my show on Friday. I don't know if you're familiar with her or not. You should be. She's great. And she's got a book out, a new book out called How to Write a Song That Matters. It, 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 because she does songwriting workshops and she taught a college course Wesleyan. And I, I was intrigued by what it was about. I'm going to let you hear how she describes it. It was called Music Movements in a um, Capitalist Democracy. Right. I'm looking <laughs> yeah, at it. Now. Because right. I was, it was going to be called Music Movements in a Democracy. But, you know, I was thinking about how in Canada, there's so much more. They have the health care paid for. Yes. They have a rule about Canadian content. They support their festivals. They support recording artists and tours. It's different than the sink or swim, you know. When I first found out that they had quotas on how many Canadian artists a radio station had to play before they could bring in others, what the ratio of it was, and how supportive they are. And I was amazed. And then I find that countries who care about their artists do stuff like that. Yeah, and it's actually even worse than that. So not only are there fewer sort of cultural subsidies in the United States, but the, the monopoly and monopsony problem directly results in songwriters getting um, treated even worse than they would otherwise. So the three big record labels own or um, control almost 70% of the global recorded music market. And they happen to own the three major music publishers, which control almost 60% of the song rights. Now, the, the way that the, the, so that creates just an enormous conflict. You know, I, I want to jump in for a second because you say yeah. the three, the three record labels and people are going, wait a minute, there's more than three. There's, you know, there's Interscope and there's a uh, Def Jam and there's a, but there's all these little labels that are owned by the big labels and it's like a pyramid and the, and they keep buying up the little indie guys. And so what is it? Universal Music Group, Sony Music and one other? And Warners. And Warners. Duh. That's it. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And so there's this huge conflict of interest that comes from the record labels owning the music publishers that really uh, we think is impacting the way that the publishers get that the, the, the composers get paid because just the way that the business is set up, if you were to pay them equally, which is how it works in some places and under some contracts, uh, then more of the money is actually going to go to the composer. Whereas if you pay the, it to the recording artist, it's going to stay within the record label. And that comes down to a con called recoupment. And not many people know this about how a, a recording contract works, but um, I'm going to talk particularly about how it was structured around 2000, where we've got um, um, some of the more egregious practices. Okay. So around that time, maybe you were getting a royalty rate of, you know, maybe seven or nine percent. And it's going to cost you and your bandmates, say there's four of you, you know, you need a little bit of money to live on. You need some money to record the record and to pay for some promotional costs and so on. That's going to maybe take you a couple of years. Let's call it $150,000. Now, the way it works in, um, in, in music recording is that all of that money gets totted up as a debt that you owe to the right. label. And then you have to repay that debt out of your 7% or 9% royalty that you get on each record. 
And depending on you know how much the record cost and what the royalty is exactly, it can cost easily three million dollars for you to repay your one hundred and fifty thousand, like three million dollars of revenues before you've paid back your notional one hundred and fifty thousand right. dollar debt to the to the label. And so by structuring streaming deals, for example, so that most of the money goes to the recording artists and less goes to um, the songwriters, uh, that happens to work out very well because those debts are almost never recouped and the record labels almost never actually have to pay out more money to those artists. They just keep taking it and taking it. And the, um, so the, the royalty rates are, are much better now because we do have competition from alternative distribution platforms for current deals. But the old deals, which were all for the life of the, co- the, the copyright, there are deals from the 60s and 70s that are still um, ongoing today. And sometimes those people are only earning a, a, a notional royalty rate of 3 or 4%. And that's all, even though the, the backlist on the streaming um, platforms can be very, very popular, all of that money is going directly into the coffers of those, those record labels and they, they still don't have to pay out. I think it's only Sony actually that has agreed to reform this and write off old recruitment debts really? so that some of these legacy musicians actually finally get a paycheck after decades. Yes. Um, at the time we went to print at least, Universal um, and Warner was still refusing to do yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's right. Wow. Yeah, I, and you know, this this neatly dovetails into some of the solutions from the back half of the book. And I want to stress again that, you know, we, we devoted fully half of the book to technical solutions and that they're they're not solutions that individuals can take. I know the feeling, right? You read a you read a, a book that is full of horrible things that are going on. You know, you read Silent Spring and you find out about all the birds dying because of DDT, and you're like, well, what can I do? What if I just stop putting DDT on my plants? It's not going to solve the problem. Solve the DDT problem was a ban on DDT. And, you know, in the same way that you can't recycle your way out of climate change, you can't individually shop your way out of monopoly. And so what we propose are structural answers, right? So things that local governments can do. And we do have a chapter, you know, you mentioned the Canadian content rules. Uh, I am Canadian. We're, we're like serial killers. We're everywhere and we look just <laughs> like everybody else. Uh, and, and you know, in the um, w- we have a chapter on how a local government working with its local library has produced uh, incredible dividends for local artists making their own streaming service. Wow. And so there are things local governments can do. There are things state governments can do. So, for example, um, nearly all the contracts involving entertainment products are uh, consummated in New York or, or in California or in Washington state because of Amazon. And so there's a lot of, uh, uh, place for a space for a state legislature to act. You know, if we reform the contract laws in those three states so that there's no non-disclosure when you find, uh, accounting irregularities in your royalty statement, then if you find out that your label's been ripping you off or your publisher or your studio, which happens all the time, we, we talk yeah. to someone who, uh, in the book or we, we, uh, reference someone in the book who's had tens of thousands of these audits and they found that, uh, there are, are in, innumerable instances in which wages are being stolen from creators and only one instance in all of those in which it turned out that the label had made a mistake in the favor of the creator and and to its own detriment. This is an incredible coincidence. I think you'll understand, you'll agree that it seems, seems almost impossible to believe, but yet somehow this is the case. So if we just said, okay, there's no more enforceable non-disclosure in contracts for this kind of um, uh, accounting regularity, then uh, if you find six figures in, in money that's owed to you, as one of our sources did, you can go tell all the other people who are signed to similar deals with your label, hey, this is where your stolen money is. You should go ask for it. Wow. Um, but in the case of um, these old contracts that have worse terms, there's another thing we can do, which is called termination. And the termination right was written into the 1976 Copyright Act. It was substantially watered down from the original proposal. It's actually a very old idea in American copyright. The first American copyright law lasted for 14 years and then only the creator could renew it for another 14 years. So if you signed a deal with your publisher that wasn't very good because they were buying a pig and a poke, they didn't know if your book would sell well, but after 14 years, it was a bestseller. They had to come to you and get you to renew the copyright. Ah. If you wouldn't renew the copyright, they wouldn't be able to have exclusive rights to the books anymore. And so that was a chance for you to get a second bite at the apple. Well, under US law today, 
you can, after 30 years, file some paperwork with the copyright office and say, I want to cancel that contract I had where I signed away my copyright forever. Even if it says you signed it away forever, you can cancel it. Now, it's full of carve-outs. It's technically very complicated, but it has served a bunch of artists who, who got bad deals originally and whose works are still commercially viable. Stephen King used it to cancel the deals on his first you know, half dozen novels. Uh -huh. And it got him because he was a baby well, writer. Right. He wasn't he wasn't Stephen King the giant, right? right. Now he's got a better deal on that. Uh, every Sweet Valley High book, every Babysitter's Club book, they're all back in their creator's hands. Wow. Uh, George Clinton was able to cancel the the assignments on all of his music. And so, you know, if, if we're worried about these heritage acts, and we should be because they signed some very bad deals. Uh, and although... Uh, they are predominantly racialized, predominantly black artists. Uh, and no one got a great deal. I mean, the Beatles used to have to split one penny sure. between them for every album they sold. And that was after paying their agent. Yeah, they had to pay their agent. They had to hold back 15% for, uh, for, so they got 85% of a penny. 15% was withheld for promotional oh, copies. And then they split that four ways after paying their agent 10%. Uh, and so, you know, even the Beatles got a raw deal. And so there's so much space to go in there and say, let's, uh, modify the terms of copyright, not to make it last longer or make the penalties harsher or make it easier to exact them, because that doesn't help you if the money from that doesn't land in the artist's pocket. Right. Let's figure out how to make these interventions in a way that actually helps working artists. Yeah, yeah. and amending um, the termination law so that it does a much better job of that is a really great place to start. Because as Corey said, it's got all these carve-outs, it's, it's really complicated. And particularly when it comes to those old record deals, the labels have been arguing um, that they don't apply to music deals under like some pretty um, wonky stuff I won't get into. And in fact, they were so determined to stop the termination law from uh, benefiting recording artists that they stole the right to do so. That's what they tried. So first of all, when this law was passed in 1976, they hadn't managed to get sound recordings listed in the, in the, the works that it wouldn't apply to, right? Then around 2000, just when we were, we're starting to get, you know, within viewing distance of the time people would start to actually be able to cancel their deals, um, uh, a congressional staffer called um, Mitch Glazier, in the dead of night, snuck in four little words into a completely unrelated bill, the Satellite Home Viewer Improvement Act, right, that added sound recordings to the list of works for hire that could be excluded from this, oh, right? Man. Nobody noticed until it had been signed into law and then every all hell broke loose, right? And uh, artists, uh, the copyright office, law professors, artist advocates were all completely outraged. The record industry stole the right for, for musical artists to take advantage of this. Yes. Right? Artists did mobilize and after a year of concerted pressure, they finally managed to get it rolled back. Um, uh, but it's still very, very difficult the, the, to, to terminate a sound recording today because they argue that they fall within these other categories that are in the act. And anytime someone's got deep enough pockets to actually litigate this, they settle it so there's no precedent that like more vulnerable artists can rely upon. And the cherry on top, <laughs> if you were not outraged enough, that congressional staffer that I mentioned, yeah. uh, who snuck in those words in the dead of night, yeah was immediately recruited by the Recording Industry Association of America to go work for them. And today he's their chairman and CEO. <gasps> what is his name? Mitch Glazier. Oh, my goodness. I, I yes. thought the name sounded familiar. Wow. That's yeah, our, our book is full of stories like this. Like if you were not enraged enough about what's going on for creators, you're definitely going to be after you read about this. But also we really do focus on these solutions and show so many great examples of the way that these atomized workers, these creative laborers have managed to turn the tables and get more of the value of their work for themselves. You talk about in the early days of rap, for instance, there was a lot of sampling going on. Well, somebody said, wait a minute, we can make money off of this and started licensing snippets from songs. And this turned into a whole other cottage industry. It's like, how much can we milk out of this stone? And now is that being fixed or not? Well, I, no, I, you know, that's so what happened was when in the early days of sampling, nobody um, thought that you needed a license to take a second or two of someone else's music. You know, when when like um, 
Charlie Parker is blowing a solo and he puts a couple of bars of some other song and he doesn't have a license for right. it. You know, when Ella Fitzgerald is, is, is scatting and she puts in, you know, uh, a bit of Deo or a bit of uh, That's Amore, right? right. No, no one, no one gets a license for it. And so they were just doing the same thing, but with snippets of tape or, or uh, bits off of vinyl records. And it was assumed to be okay. Uh, there are a couple of different legal theories for why. One is that it was fair use, but the other is that it was what was called de minimis, which is like just below the threshold for the law to tr- trouble itself with. Like it's not trespassing if your toe brushes your neighbor's lawn. It's right. just, you know, formally you might have broken the law, but it's de minimis, just doesn't matter. And so that was the way we proceeded for a long time. We got a pretty incredible era in hip hop. You got albums uh, like It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back from Public Enemy and Paul's Boutique from the Beastie Boys, which just had hundreds of samples, sometimes layered on top of each other. Right. Public Enemy liked to take, you know, six snare drums and lay them on top of each other to make a, a snare that sounded like no snare you'd ever heard. And just, just this really amazing stuff. And and what happened was there were a couple of bad court cases uh, that that made it a lot more questionable about whether or not you were in the clear to do it. And the people who were publishing these albums decided that the safe thing to do was to just clear the samples, to just pay for it. And at first, that was pretty good news because a lot of these uh, were heritage acts. A lot of the samples were taken from heritage acts, so old R&B artists who, who never got a very good deal. And their contracts were such that maybe that didn't fall under their recoupment or maybe they had recoup, but there wasn't any new money coming in. And so that came in as new money over the transom. And for people who are really in dire shape, you know, just a couple of bags of groceries a year was was a big difference. But Almost immediately, the label saw an opportunity. What they started to do was uh, amend their contracts so that every time uh, you signed a record deal, you had to sign over those sample rights. So the revenues went to the label. And in order to license the samples, in order to to get samples for your own composition, you had to be willing to... um, uh, or you had to be signed to a label because the labels would only license to each other. And so it created this really um, uh, amazing, uh, vicious cycle where if you wanted to make sampling music, chances were the music you wanted to sample came from a label. So you had to sign to a label. You had to sign away your sampling rights. And then if someone wanted to sample you, they would have to sign to a label and sign away their sampling rights. And very quickly, we got to a, a world where nobody makes music that is legal of the sort that Public Enemy and Paul's Boutique made, right? That wasn't right. just that, or and Beastie Boys made. That wasn't just that the tastes changed. What happened was that it became uh, um, commercially prohibitive to make those albums. You know, uh, Kembrew McLeod uh, uh, and his Peter colleague, DeCola. Peter DeCola, yeah, they uh, the, uh, wrote this great book uh, where they calculate how much money Paul's Boutique and It Takes a Nation of Millions uh, would have would, would told us back would have lost right. if they had all those samples. It was they millions of dollars. Wouldn't it? I think they said that they, um, there was one court that suggested that the albums would have to sell for about $240 each oh, right. to, cover, to cover the, the samples. <laughs> yeah, so these were the most commercially successful <laughs> hip-hop albums of all time when they, when they uh, did this study. And so... You know, a, a kind of music that people loved and that was commercially viable and that made money for artists disappeared. And then a new kind of music was created. And, and I like a lot of uh, later hip hop music that has fewer samples. But I also like uh, acts like Girl Talk that make illegal music, right? Music that samples without clearance. And it's contemporary music. It sounds as contemporary as anything else. Uh, and the musician who makes it is talented. And they deserve to be as compensated as the Beastie Boys were, yeah. as, as um, Public Enemy were. But they can only make music uh, outside of the commercial realm because they're breaking the law every time they make music. Wow. Now, you know, Corey Doctorow, you've been writing in this space and and talking about this space. And, for instance, your book... Um, you cannot be a lot. I know a lot of my listeners like to buy audiobooks. Um, they cannot get Choke Point Capitalism uh, through Audible, which is the biggest audiobook, uh, I guess, supplier out there. Monopolist, I Monopolist. think. Monopolist. There you for. go. Monopolist and monopsonist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. These yeah. are so, really a piece of work. Can we talk a little please, bit about Audible? Please do. Yes. Explain why. Well, this is a classic example of a shakedown of artists. Um, One of the stories that we write about is uh, a scandal called Audiblegate. If you you want to look it up, it's hashtag Audiblegate, and you can find out a little bit of information about this shocking wage theft scandal. But basically, um, independent writers and smaller publishers, in order to get their books onto Audible, they've got to go through an 
Audible own platform called ACX. And you have to get your books onto Audible, right? Because that is by far the biggest share of the market. So if you're not on Audible, you're really not going to make very much money. And Corey, uh, Corey's agent tells him or has told him, you know what, mate, if, uh, if you put your, if you had only put your books on Audible, you would have paid off the mortgage on your house and you would have a college fund for your kid, right? Uh-huh. Neither of which has actually happened, but the Corey won't work with them because of the ways in which they insist on mandatory DRM in order to lock in um, their users, which help them lock in their suppliers and also eliminate competition. So all the things we talk about in the book. But this other con that they were doing, they took that power that they got from having that lock-in through that, that DRM. Um, and because creators had no other choice, they were able to do things like um, not give any kind of transparency around their sales. So the way that they were reporting it is they might say to um, an author, okay, you sold three books today. What they wouldn't say was, well, actually, you sold 13 books today, but 10 of them were returned. Because one of the ways that Amazon likes to lock in or Audible likes to lock in listeners to the company is by offering subscribers virtually unlimited rights to return those books for a full credit again. Really? Now, this has only been available to ongoing subscribers. So it is a way of really locking them in and keeping them into this ecosystem. But Audible was recovering that. uh, And so I, I should say as well, it wasn't that you could return a book for a credit if you listened to the first few minutes and you didn't like it or even, you know, the first few chapters, you could listen to the whole thing through. You could love it it. and you would be encouraged to return it. No questions asked for a full credit and basically use the service like a library. Yeah. At the end of the listen, it would say, did you want to return this? Click here. (gasps) And and so what was happening? And so they were hiding this from the authors by like having net sales instead of separating out the actual sales from the returns. Um, and the only reason this came to light is because there was a, a glitch, a data glitch that showed everybody uh, three weeks of returns data all in a single day. And so suddenly authors were able to see, wow, this is massively affecting our bottom line. And so one author uh, called Susan May realized that half, fully half of her book sales were being returned. And so she started this um, campaign to demand that Audible change their terms. Um, And one of the other people that came on board with this was a woman called Colleen Cross, who had been a forensic accountant and then had switched careers to become the writer of financial fraud thrillers, which is actually a big thing. She's a very successful (laughs) writer as well. She started taking a magnifying glass, that forensic eye to the um, the royalties and having a look at, well, hang on a minute, if Audible's doing this with returns, what else are they doing to us? Colleen Cross estimates that instead of actually paying the authors the way that the contracts say they should, which already would have given Audible a massive share, that Audible's taking up to 87, 89% of every cent that's coming in for these books for independent authors. And what this amounts to between the return scam and what uh, she's saying about the way the royalties are being mispaid is wage theft of hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and again, really difficult to take action against Amazon uh, because of the way the contracts are formed. And of course, the sheer power of Amazon, or the Amazon Audible complex. Uh, but they have managed through working together to get some real reforms in terms of how the returns policy works um, in, in terms of who pays for it when a book is returned, uh, how long uh, subscribers have to return a book, but also a little bit more transparency in how the sales are reported. Um, and this shows us like it's, again, one of the solutions that that we can demand, we can ask for more transparency, okay? It's very, very difficult to fight an enemy if you can't see what they look like. And so uh, we see from this story that once the authors knew what was going on, they were able to mobilize and to get at least some change, although we're still waiting for that fight to progress and hopefully they're going to get more than that. And I should mention that if you are an, uh, an audiobook listener, although you can't get our work on Audible, you can get it everywhere else audiobooks are sold. Obo, Barnes & Noble, Google Play, Libro.fn. So we kickstarted this, the production for this, and we raised over $100,000 uh, in pre-sales for the audiobook. And we got a wonderful reader, a guy named Stefan Rudnicki, who you may know as the voice of Ender from the Ender's Game books. He's done more than 1,000 audiobooks, and he co-owns a, a wonderful studio here in L.A., called Skyboat Media. He did an incredible job narrating it. And it was great to have our fans uh, help us out with the, with the audiobook. And we did put a little bit of it on Audible. So we have a chapter in the book about 
how Audible steals from creators. And we packaged it up as an Audible original and we used ACX to publish it. We don't think you should buy it there, but <laughs> <laughs> you can you can get it there. We also have a chapter on how Spotify steals from artists. We made that a Spotify exclusive oh, and wow. you can get that on Spotify as well. I might, I'm, I'm not sure that we talk about how Spotify steals from artists, but definitely the, the moves that they're making to try and create trick points as well. Although there's plenty there about how record labels have right. also got some collude really with, dodgy collude with Spotify and uh, structure the deal. The record labels have insisted over time on structuring deals in a way that get them the money and like diverted away from creators' pockets. So that recruitment scam we were talking about before, where they only have to share the tiniest amount with creators in the first place, wasn't enough. They also tried all of these other cons, which we detail in the book. They did. No. And it seems that they'll keep going uh, and keep pushing and pushing until we push back enough that they have to stop and, and retreat, right? So- yeah, and we is the right word there, that this is not a, this is not an individual action. As you say, the, the book is really focused on these collective projects, these things that we have to do together as a polity uh, that, that we can't just solve on our own. Well, I thank you for doing the work and for writing this book. And, and Corey, I know you've been walking the talk for a long, long time. Rebecca, we're just meeting, but apparently you have as well. Um, yeah, I know you're obviously from Australia. Are these same problems universal? Are they all over the world? Are the copyright um, laws and rules in each country different so that in some places it's, it's better, like Canada, for the artists? But they are different, and we're actually seeing some some hopeful green shoots. Uh, for example, coming out of Europe in 2019, they passed the Digital Single Market Directive that has some really encouraging right. new rights for creators. So, for example, it includes transparency rights over pay and revenues and use of the work, so, so um, artists and performers can find out about that. It includes um, mandates for fair remuneration, Right, which is like a minimum wage for creative work. Please, yeah. um, and it also includes reversion rights or termination rights, uh, which uh, in, in the event that the works are no longer being commercially exploited, then um, member states have got to give their their artists the right to be able to get those works back. So these are really encouraging models. They build upon other European laws that have been operating and successful for a number of years now. And we're definitely, well, certainly in my work, um, it's a lot about um, building the evidence about whether this kind of intervention works. Um, and certainly there is a growing amount that it, they do. Well, I hope so. One little thing I'm noticing, I'm hoping that I, what I'm seeing is actually happening. YouTube apparently is tweaking things. I was invited to this, uh, like a focus group kind of thing for creators who do play sound files illegally on YouTube. Occasionally I'll use music, uh, like with Dar Williams the other day. So she played a song and I played something from a few years ago. When I do that, I never know if I'm going to get copyright violated. Sometimes they'll do the content sharing so they take any revenue that I might earn, which I'm fine with. Or in the worst case scenario, especially if it's a Don Henley song, they'll block the video and will give me a copyright strike and get me suspended from streaming on YouTube for three months. But now I notice with the Dar Williams, they wrote out each song that I used and said they will be sharing the revenue in these. Great. That's what I wanted all along. Let me pay so I can play an artist's music. But that mechanism didn't exist. Maybe they're working towards that now. Do you, I don't know if you know. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely YouTube has announced some uh, some improvements this week. It's funny because it's two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. Uh, the same week, Twitch announced some major regressions in how they treat their artists. Wow. So, you know, uh, Twitch is a, a division of Amazon. They've been part of Amazon since 2014. And that acquisition was supposed to be strategic in the sense that the Amazon would be able to do something for Twitch that Twitch as a standalone platform couldn't do on its own. The obvious thing would be providing Twitch with bandwidth because Amazon Web Services is one of the largest providers of, of hosting in the world, right? Streaming in the world. It's, you know, Netflix's back end and so on. And um, it's also the major variable cost in running Twitch, right? The cost of developing the Twitch software is the same whether you have one creator or a million creators or one viewer or a million viewers. But the cost of serving those streams changes based on how many viewers you have. And so it's the thing where in order to grow, they need to get it uh, ever more cheaply. So um, last week they announced 
that they were going to cut the pay of their highest paid creators. So their split with creators is 50-50, which is already ghastly. The idea that they take half the money you earn. But it turns out that they had offered sneaky sweetheart deals to their most valuable creators of 70-30. And they said, well, you know, this is really unfair. Some creators shouldn't get 70% while others get 50, which is true. But it does ask this question, why don't we just give everyone 70%? (laughs) But they had an answer. And their answer was, Amazon charges us too much for bandwidth. Well, hold on. Are you saying, as Sam Sater from The Intercept said, Amazon has to take money from Amazon because Amazon charges Amazon too much money to run the service. And that's why they've got to cut streamers' (laughs) wages? (laughs) And, you know, it it, it raises the question, right? What was the strategic part of that deal? Was it that they could get cheaper bandwidth or was it that once they had a monopoly, they could get cheaper labor? Uh, It's like the chicken and the egg. There you go. It's the age old question. (laughs) It's like the chicken and the pot. (laughs) There Mm. are that too. Corey Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin, authors of the new book, Choke Point Capitalism, How Big Tech and Big Content Capture Creative Labor Markets and How We'll Win Them Back. I hope that was as enlightening for you as it was for me. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting again, The Bradcast. Brad and Desi will be back next time. You can always find me at NicoleSandler.com. Until next time, as Brad always says, and it seems to be more pertinent with each passing day, good luck, world. Hey,